Hey, deserving listeners. In this episode, we're going to talk about dream analysis. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast in which we talk about dream analysis. I am your host, Dr. Karkonda, who is about to talk about dream analysis. I'm a professor and a therapist who talks about dream analysis with his students and his clients and sometimes talks about himself in the third person, third person, second person. Anyway, so this episode is actually me talking with Michael Drain from the Unpopular Culture podcast about dream analysis. So let's just go to that talk right now. Okay. So uh, this one came into our Twitter page at UPC Podcast, and it says, Hey there. I know this is the mother of all questions, but I was wondering if you could talk about dream interpretation. Why do we dream? And how can I better understand the meaning of these dreams? Yeah, uh, good question. And there's a lot of bad information out there. Uh, what, <clears throat> uh, And I somewhat specialize in this with my clients. There are various theories about the meaning of our dreams, but the fact of the matter is, is we just don't really understand why we dream, just like we barely understand the brain. In fact, barely understand is probably a bad way of putting it. We don't understand the brain. We, we understand some things that, are, that we can say, but even those things are, are kind of tentative. Uh, we just don't understand the brain. We don't understand why we dream. But there are different theories. One is, is that they might just be completely random noise that occurs during um, you know, sleep. Our higher brain, you know, the, the, the visualization I have of this theory is like your brain is just randomly firing, you know, it's just going ping, ping, ping. And then our higher brain is trying to interpret that and like make, because we're inherently story makers, you know, our, our higher brain is very much interested in making narratives. And so these like random images are like, you know, coming from other parts of the brain and different feelings and notions and stuff. And then it, the prefrontal cortex is like piecing together some narrative from that, which would explain the randomness of dreams. So it could be completely random. Number two, it another theory is that it makes temporary memories long-term memories. So during the, during the day, you have all these experiences that are stored in short-term memory. And then as you sleep, your brain is consolidating those memories into long-term. Um, and the third theory is that Dreams are preparations or rehearsals for solving problems. So if you're getting into a conflict with someone at work in your dream, your your brain is trying to rehearse something to, uh, one, maybe derive options and solutions, which is kind of weird when you think about the solutions you come up with when you're dreaming. But, but maybe even the emotional exposure to that stimulus so that you don't freak out when it actually happens in real life. And then, of course... The fourth theory is uh, related to what we're going to talk about here, which is that it relates to your psychological issues. It relates to your personality. And that's the, you know, the main premise that, that I follow, although I completely acknowledge the other theories have merit. And some dreams, when I'm talking with my clients, at the end of our analysis process, we say, we just kind of look at each other and go like, well... Maybe that was just a random dream. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that dream had no meaning in your life, and it was just kind of a random brain fart at night. You know, which is good. And that's the that's the disadvantage to dream interpretation is you tend to interpret things that aren't that there's no causality between something, but you're going to find something in your attempt to 
understand it. Sometimes it can be random. Right. And, and to me, it's even if all dreams are random, which is totally possible, the process of dream interpretation in therapy is basically deriving meaning out of if it's meaningless, then you're 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 deriving meaning from something that's meaningless. In the same way that, um, say you uh, get leukemia or something. Well, there's no inherent. All the philosophers will tell you there's no inherent meaning to life. There's no inherent meaning to your leukemia. But you will, if you you're a typical human, you'll derive meaning from that. You'll say, well. My leukemia has given me a greater appreciation of life. That's the meaning of my leukemia. Or my leukemia has given me a greater appreciation for other people with leukemia, and I'm going to dedicate my life to raising awareness and prevention of leukemia or something. So if a dream has no meaning, which is possible, deriving meaning in therapy is still a worthy process if it relates to the therapy goals. So the process that I go through with clients are, you know, I always have to ask them about dreams because clients almost never just say, just tell me about a dream (laughs) because I think they think dreams are cheesy or something. And so I'll just be like, especially if there's a lull in therapy, you know, they're just like, huh, I don't know what to talk about. I'll be like, well, have you had a dream lately? And then we enter into a highly collaborative process. It's not the classic Freudian process where I just think everything's a penis, you know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's really exploratory. I'm, I'm characterizing Freud wrongly, but but anyway, um, I really explore the dream. You know, we'll talk about it, um, and I try to put the client in the expert position. I try to really ask a lot of questions, like, "Well, what do you think that means?" and and how do you feel about that? And I'll ask from various different angles. I'll say, like, because oftentimes they'll when people talk about dreams, they just talk about the events. You know, they'll just be like, "So I was driving down the street." And then I went off a cliff and then I crashed. But then suddenly I was at home with my mom and she was walking on the ceiling and it was weird, you know. And so what I have to do almost always is say, okay, so when you were driving the car, how'd you feel? And they'll be like, huh, well, I think I felt normal. And when you went off the, you know, the cliff, how'd you feel? Well, I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. And how'd that feel for you? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just remember just being like, oh my God, my life is over, you know. So you have to ask questions to kind of flesh out the dream, ask them how they, how they feel. Right, Michael? Yes, um, I agree. So the component to that, the, the reason behind doing that is to try to identify the kind of feelings that these dreams are generating. And if you can correlate them to, well, I was, I was standing in a room, but I was feeling very scared by it. It's a, it's a huge clue right. to understanding the themes behind it. Right. A- another premise that I follow is, everything and everyone in the dream is actually a part of the self and that you, which is, I think a, this is Freud, Freud, right? He believes that you're, you're everybody in your dreams. You're every character in the dream. Right. And, and it's sort of a mind blowing thing to people, even though I find it to be such a simple idea, you know, they'll say, yeah, I dreamt about Trump the other night, you know, and, and Trump was blah, blah. And then I'll, I'll say like, so what, what part of you is Trump? And they'll be like, what do you mean? I'll be like, you know, well, well, you know, what part of you is Trump? You know, what what part of you is the Trump part of you? And they'll be like, there's no, there's no part of me that's Trump. And I'll be like, well, you understand Trump didn't transport himself into your dreams, right? Like you created him and you enter, and then there was a you in the dream, but you also created Trump and you also created the living room and you also created your mom. So your mom wasn't actually in your dream. 
that was you creating your mom. And so you were the, the puppet master of every single element of that dream, including Trump. So what part of you is Trump? And they'll just be like, there's a part of me that's Trump, you know, and, and, you know, anyway. Blows their mind. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so we go back and forth about that collaboratively and we try to come up with meetings and I'll, and at the end of, you know, a lot of questions, I'll just say, so after exploring this dream, what do you think it means? I'll just, I'll just ask him, what do you think it means? Nine times out of 10, people will say like, I think this has to do with what's happening at work, or I think this has to do with what's happening in my marriage, or I think this has to do with my, you know, my health or, you know, they'll, they'll, it it will coherent, it'll cohere with something in their life for them. And then we'll say, huh, so what does that tell you? You know, what, what is, what is your dream? What's your unconscious trying to tell you? And again, that's usually all I have to ask. And they'll be like, I think what my dreams are trying to tell me is I, I need to face this fear head on and not shy away from it. Or I think that what this means is I need to reconnect with my spouse or, you know, they'll, they'll come up with their own meanings. And that's my point I was getting at earlier is like, even if the dream means nothing and it's just a random set of neurons firing, I'm always trying to get at some therapeutic um, help, some therapeutic gold in the dream. Because when you believe that your unconscious is trying to tell you something, it has a great deal of power to it. You know, now if someone had a dream and said, I think what this means is my destiny is to go on a killing spree and kill a bunch of people. <laughs> then, then I'm going to be like, well, you know, <laughs> let's hold off on that one. You know, at, at, le- at the very least it'd be like an assessment piece. So I'm absolutely inserting my own, shall we say, morality in that analysis, which I have to recognize, you know, I have to recognize that I'm not just a completely objective explorer with someone. I'm trying to help them, you know, enrich their relationships, feel better about themselves, uh, have better, have a better future. And, and so I have to recognize, and most therapists are like that, right? But as I enter into that analysis piece, I, I do have that as, as kind of a background influence, you know? So that's my dream interpretation process. Dreams are weird. If you had math as a subject where everything has a definitive answer on one side and then maybe psychology on another side where it's subjective and there are no definitive answers, it's it's dependent on the person largely. Dreams seem to be even further into the subjective box right. on that side of the spectrum. Right. We ha- And so one has to be careful not to interpret the dream for the client. Totally. And you have to be careful not to insert what you think, oh, your mom was walking on the ceiling and then, you know, and Freud does a good job of it acknowledging that, you know, with transference and everything, but I I don't want to interpret that for you, so you have to be very careful to let them stay in the driver's seat the whole time and be very selective about the way you offer feedback because you don't want to risk steering them off the course that they want to be on. Right. But uh, yeah, sleep is weird. We spend a third of our lives asleep and yet we don't know why we do it. Yeah. We don't even, how it helps. Yeah. We don't even understand why we sleep. So let alone why we, why we dream. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's insane. I've heard all the theories you had listed. Um, the one I like, although I, I also acknowledge that, you know, we don't know. So how can we say definitively that any of these are true? But the idea that the brain, uses sleep and dreaming as an opportunity to organize the events of your day, discard the things that you didn't need and 
categorize the things that are important into a long-term memory process. There's a cool study where they had two groups. They had one group play this snowboarding game. You know, you walk into an arcade and you stand on a snowboarding thing in front of a screen and you practice this game. Well, both of these groups had never played the game before. Group one practices for the first time. They go through the snowboarding game. They get a certain score, and then they're able to try it, let's say, four hours later. Okay, you get a second try, and their score is improved, and that makes sense because they had a practice run. Then they have a second group where, okay, first time trying the snowboarding game. Let's see what kind of score you get. They score whatever they score, and then this group is allowed to sleep and then try it the next day. And the scores improved over the group that had slept versus the group who had just tried it later on that day. So the idea being that you are able to integrate the things you learn in a more solid way through the sleeping and dreaming process. Now, I don't, you know, nobody knows why. This is not substantiated. I mean, there's there's studies and stuff that point in certain directions. That's one of my favorites. Um, I use this all the time if I'm studying for something. I will intentionally study right before bed because I find that I will wake up having a, like I play piano, I'll learn a song and I'm, I'm sitting there trying to practice a song and I'll do it right before I go to bed. And when I wake up every single time, something happens where I, I feel more solid. The keys come more naturally to me. It's more fluid than it was before. So I'm pretty strong on the, on the idea that there, there's some kind of cognitive component to sleeping and dreaming that makes you better at skills, memory, you know, integrating um, events of your life and that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a fair amount of empirical evidence, not only in the ability to become better at something, but also, and memory, but also creativity is enhanced by REM sleep, it seems. So, yeah. There, but again, it's hard to nail that down. And it's, and, and there's studies that don't uh, support that notion. And so, and the effect is actually not that strong. Because, again, you're looking at, with the snowboarding thing, you're looking at just one activity, you know, um, and presumably your your REM benefits are happening throughout your lifetime. And so, so yeah, it's just, it's hard, hard to know. Um, some, some of those studies, the confounding variable is just sleep, because sleep in general just makes your cognitive abilities stronger, you know. That's a great point. You know, yeah. So, and... Like with the piano thing, because as a musician myself, late at night, my brain, I've noticed, is just not as good, you know, <laughs> whereas uh, I, my brain, I figured out uh, rather recently, actually, I figured this out, that my brain is at its best at probably like 10 a.m. or 11 a.m., especially when I'm hopped up on coffee <laughs> and and at like, but I love working late at night. And so I'll be like you know, doing some sort of academic thing at like 1130. And I'll just know that the next day I'm going to be much more effective. <laughs> and so, but anyway, yeah. So there seems to be some evidence, you know, pointing in the direction of, of those theories as well. And it could be all of them, honestly, is, is my thing is it could be, it could help memory, it could help creativity, it could help uh, functioning, it could be a representation of what you're worrying about. It could be, you know, memory. It could be random. You know, to me, it's, it's likely all of them, you know, and others. I have, I agree. I've, I've had dreams where I, I, I wake up completely understanding the metaphor of why I dreamt that based on what's going on in my life. 
And then I've had dreams where I have no idea like what that was about, where it came from, but it was there. And then if I dig a little bit, I can find components, you know, I was feeling anxious in that dream. So, you know, it must be this. It is interesting to note that dreaming is such a powerful thing. You know, you think when you sleep, one might think that your brain shuts down. But in fact, your brain is still extremely active while you're sleeping and through your dreaming process. In fact, um, we have a switch in our brain that when we sleep, it disconnects our, our mind from our body. So you're, I guess, paralyzed would be a way to call it while, while you're dreaming. For people who sleepwalk, this switch is not, is not working properly. And your brain so much doesn't know the difference between a dream and reality that when you're dreaming, uh, the reason you sleepwalk is because that, that connection has not been severed. So people will act out their dreams um, in real life. You could be brushing your hair in a dream and, and you'll see somebody in the real world and they're sleeping, but they're sitting there pretending to brush their hair. Creepy. So it is creepy. It really is. Have you ever done that before, yeah. Michael? <laughs> no, I'm not much of a sleepwalker. I wake up so easily, though. Huh. I, I don't know. I, I just I'm not a I'm not a huge sleeper. I, I don't sleep. Raging insomniac. I don't sleep walk, but I sleep kick and punch. <laughs> sleep karate, which, which is which is really really just a wonderful thing. If if you're sleeping in the bed with me, yeah, I bet. Yeah. As a kid, I I would actually wake up and my dream would be superimposed over reality. So I would. And it, it only happened a handful of times, but I would wake up and I would hallucinate things that were happening in the real world. And it's all part of that, all part of the sleep disorders. But yeah, I suffer from a lot of them. <coughs> There's evidence it has to do with serotonin and sleep deprivation. Wow, that's that's interesting. So let me understand this. When you, You're saying when you woke, right when you wake up, you are hallucinating? Right. So middle of the night... I would wake up, so I I would I can still remember I'm like I don't know like ten or something, and I sit up in bed and on my comforter on my blanket on my bed I see all these little people walking around, and there's a little hot dog stand, and people are walking up buying a hot dog like at like <laughs> on the streets of New York City or something, and then that kind of freaks me out and then I'm like okay I better I better get out of bed, and there's water all the way up to the top of my so if I step off the bed, I'm going to step into like knee deep water. And then, and I see a, a guy uh, like in the Mississippi with his jeans pulled up above his knees and he's walking in my room through the water. And then I get out of bed, wade through the water. And then I go to the, my, um, the, my hallway. There's like a intersection in the hallway and I can't see th- into the darkness. It's so dark. But I'm positive that one of the one of the hallways there's a monster with a with a mouth that is as big as the hallway. <laughs> and if I walk, uh, they'll chomp on me. And then the other direction, there was a nu- nuclear missile uh, pointed in you know toward that direction. <laughs> so I was like, well, I can't go that way. And then inevitably I'd walk upstairs to my parents' ha- to parents' room because I would always do that whenever I'd have these kinds of things. So I'm just like I would always just kind of make a beeline for my parents, and um, and and I would just sort of st- and you know I what I would do is I would just stand over my parents while they're sleeping, 
And then my mom, who slept closer to the door, she would like, you know, her eyes would flash open and she'd be like, Kirk, what, you know, what are you doing here? And I would say some crazy thing, you know, like there's a nuclear missile and a man walking in the Mississippi downstairs. And, <laughs> and then my mom would say, oh, Kirk, everything's fine. Go back to bed. And somehow that would reassure me and I'd go back to bed and then I'd wake up the next day and be like, what in the world? Uh, but one time I did this whole thing and I went upstairs and went to my mom's room and said, mom, something's happening. But my mom started to talk in her sleep because she didn't wake up entirely. And she said, go ask Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) And the absurdity of what she said broke me out of my stupor and I woke up, you know, and then I was like, oh, what am I doing? And then I just went back to bed. And I think that was the last time that ever happened to me, honestly. But yeah, it was a joke in my family that I was, you know, my parents would, you know, open their eyes and see me like staring at them um, in their room at like three in the morning. <laughs> oh boy! But no, oh, that's I don't. Creepy I, in this. Yeah, I don't do that anymore. But I do flail. Yeah, I'm like, um, what? Well, just one last story on this. I was having a dream. I'm I'm walking through uh, a mall in Bellevue called Bellevue Square, and this the this these these four old people. But you know they look active, but older, and they're walking toward me in the hallway of the the walkway of the mall, and there's no I can't get around them. You know they're taking up the entire walkway, and they're just sort of barreling down on me. And I put my hand up to kind of like try to make some room in between them, and and the guy that was there, the the old guy, he came at me as if he was gonna punch me. And so I pushed him back with my hand and punched him in the face hard, like as hard as I could. But in reality, what I had done, I was sleeping on my stomach. This is in the real world. And I pushed myself up like a one-handed push-up. Impressive. And I punched my own hand as hard as I possibly could. (laughs) Oh, my God. No way. And for, I'm not even joking, for six months, my hand hurt. <laughs> like six months later, I could still feel a pain in my in my hand because I punched my. I mean, imagine putting put your hand up against the wall and punch it as oh. as hard as you possibly can. You know, like you're, you're not holding anything back. We might want to consider some like uh, four point restraints for you or something, so you don't hurt yourself. Well, yeah. So they have treatment for this, which is they put you in a sleeping bag um, that zips up, so you can't get out of bed, you know, and you can't flail cuz you're you're kind of you're confined. And and they put mittens on your hands so you can't unzip the um the sleeping bag. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's insane. But that sounds awful, uh, doesn't it? Like I don't I don't Yeah, that does. I, don't think I mean, they have to go to that extreme, you know. <laughs> but they they have it. You know, you have people like that that will sleep sleepwalk out of the house and start walking down the street and have to get corralled back by family or something. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, it's not something I can personally relate to, but what a terrifying disorder that must. Yeah. And Ambien increases the risk of that, particularly for women because the dosage isn't, um, is too strong for, for women's biology. Uh, so if you ever take an Ambien, watch out. Oh yeah. 
And don't mix it with alcohol or it gets even worse. Okay, so then uh, regarding my thoughts on uh, dream interpretation, I try to use a combination of, I like psychoanalysis, I like gestalt methods. Um, You have to be careful. There's a lot of bad information, like Kirk said. Uh, You know, they have things like dream dictionaries where they'll attempt to say, well, if you have a, what's one that I heard? If you have a dream about your teeth falling out, which seems to be sort of a universal I've talked to a lot of people that have that dream, myself included. Yeah. You have a you have a, a dream about your teeth falling out. Well, then you it means you're going to come into money in the near future. Oh my and god! And I think the, yeah, exactly. And I think the idea behind this is you know the tooth fairy leave a tooth under your pillow, therefore you get money. So uh, dreams are way way too subjective to be able to open some kind of standardized dictionary and go, oh, I dreamed the color green because I'm you know what it's ridiculous it's nonsense right and and they try they've tried to actually nail that down they there there have been studies on dreams well they'll have people you know make take dream logs or they'll wake people up in the middle of the night and actually ask them what are you dreaming about right now and so there's been a fair amount of that and they still have not been able to correlate it very well with things but there there have been some findings that seem uh, possibly um, accurate in that, like I can't remember. There's this. I'm actually I was on the I was on the airplane coming back from I think New York or something, and I was writing on my laptop, and the guy next to me was looking over my shoulder, and I was just like, oh god, stop looking at my laptop. You know what I mean? I hate it when people look at what I'm writing, and this goes on for like an hour or something, a couple hours. And then eventually he asked, and the other thing is, is I'm not, I don't like to talk to people on the airplane because in my experience, what happens is you initiate a conversation and then you're kind of, you're stuck with them. Yeah. You're kind of compelled (laughs) to to talk with them for the rest of the trip. So if if we have 15 minutes left, then great. But if we have four hours left, what's the chance that I'm going to be able to turn away from you and go, okay, I'm going to go back to my thing here and you're just going to be quiet. So he starts up a conversation. I'm just like, Oh God, not only is he looking at my laptop, but now he's asking me questions. Well, we ended up talking for a couple hours after that. And I enjoyed the whole conversation because he's a dream uh, analyst expert and has like published books on it. And I can't remember the exact studies that and what they found, but uh, it was looking, I think at trauma and dreams and you know what they were finding was that your dream content for people who have been traumatized in a particular way their dream content is different and can be codified from people who have not been traumatized in that way and so i was trying to bolster the uh, theory that your dreams do have psychological relevance but again it's hard to nail that down because what people remember when they're waking up is not always reliable. Looking for exact correlates with life experiences, you know, it's just a hard thing to to nail down. Yeah, but Freud called dreaming the royal road to the unconsciousness. So right. it, it can be a way to interpret what's going on in your life, and it's fun. You know, I think it's one of the more fun aspects of psychology and therapy. It's such a mystery, and there's so much there to explore. If you are learning to or trying to understand a dream, there are some ways to do it. If you identify elements in your dream, you know, maybe your mom or was standing in the living room and there was a cat there or whatever, you you can break these elements into certain components. Like, let's say your mom was in a dream, then uh, contemporary psychoanalytic 
method is to, okay, well, tell me a bunch of memories that you have, readily apparent memories that you have about your mom. And you start to explore that issue. Um, And then from there, you can try to pick apart elements that are useful and might correlate to the rest of the dream. Having said that, you have to be careful with these free association techniques because you might interpret two things that have nothing to do with each other. Um, But art therapy, play therapy, uh, gestalt therapy, where you take the role of all the characters in your dream and uh, talk to, like if you had a, like you had said earlier, you had a dream where you're Trump's in your dream and some other people are there and you're there. You would take the roles of these people, have them talk to each other. And it sounds maybe a little silly, but in doing that, you're putting yourself in the narrative of each character and it helps you to explore and better understand you know, the, the, the who, what, where, when, and why of what that person was doing in your dream in the first place. Yeah, the self-exploratory power and self-awareness power in that kind of work is uh, amazing. I I do that sort of work with students and with clients by taking on different roles of yourself and speaking from that role can be extremely powerful for people. Uh, it's it sounds silly because it is, and it sounds you know corny because it is and i always tell people this is going to be corny um and you're going to be a little giggly at first because it's a little corny but you know let's we'll get through that phase (laughs) and and we'll see what happens here for instance imagine your father you know and you really embody your father and you sit down and you talk to your therapist as if your therapist is you and you are your father you know, just um, and imagine really getting into it for like ten minutes. How interesting, at the very least, that would be, and and how healing that might be. Um, it's it's really powerful work, and that's that part of Gestalt work is um, amazing stuff. Yeah, I found it extremely effective, and not even beyond dreaming and trying to understand dreams. But if you break yourself into characters, um, maybe your your child. You know, and your your work self and your relationship self. And I've seen a demonstration where you're sitting in a chair and when you're going to be your child, you slide your chair slightly to the left, you know, physically put yourself in a slightly different position. And then when you're talking to your adult self, you slide to the right. These little gestures can help you get into the role more. But it, it, it's such a awesome tool. It, it's so silly. But once you habituate to that, if you're working with a therapist, somebody you trust, you can really open up. And do some really amazing self-exploration. Yeah, I'm just a huge fan of Gestalt-related techniques. Absolutely. This was fun, Kirk. These quick-fire questions are a lot of fun. My thanks to your patrons for indulging me. And thank you for taking the time to help us answer our questions. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Thank you.